I'll be reading from 1 John chapter 2, verse 7. And many of you ask which translation I'm using. For this reading, I'm going to use the New Living Translation. Um, 1 John chapter 2, verse 7. Dear friends, I am not writing a new commandment, for it is an old one you have always had right from the beginning. This commandment, to love one another is the same message you heard before, yet it's also new. This commandment is true in Christ and is true among you because the darkness is disappearing and the true light is already shining. If anyone says, I am living in the light, but hates a Christian brother or sister, that person is still living in darkness. Anyone who loves other Christians is living in the light and does not cause anyone to stumble. Anyone who hates a Christian brother or sister is living and walking in darkness. Such a person is lost, having been blinded by the darkness. I'm writing to you, my dear children, because your sins have been forgiven because of Jesus. I'm writing to you who are mature because you know Christ, the one who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you who are young because you have won your battle with Satan. I have written to you, children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you who are mature because you know Christ, the one who is from the beginning. I have written to you who are young because you are strong with God's word living in your hearts and you've won your battle with Satan. Stop loving this evil world and all that it offers you, for when you love the world, you show that you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only the lust for physical pleasure, the lust for everything we see, and pride in our possessions. These are not from the Father. They're from this evil world. And this world is fading away along with everything it craves. But if you do the will of God, you will live forever. Right in the middle of this section, you can see that John's doing something because he's repeating phrases. And there's two uh, threefold formulas. You have this, uh, I'm writing to you children, I'm writing to you who are mature, or the parents, or the fathers, I'm writing to you who are young. And we can translate those different ways, but what you have is you have three different ages. You have the, and, and by the way, it's, you know, this could be spiritually, or it could actually be chronological age. But you've got this idea of children, and these are little kids, little tiny, these are, you know, not, and then you have the, the parents, the, the fathers, those are the ones with mature wisdom, and then you have the young people that are somewhere in between. It doesn't really matter what age exactly those are. What's interesting about the way John does this, and he goes one, two, three, and then once again he goes one, two, three, is I think that he's trying to show us that there's something good about every age. That whatever age we're at, whatever age group others are at, there's something good in it. And so you, you see a, a wealth of scriptural wisdom in that. With the first group he mentions, the young. You think of verses like Ecclesiastes 12.1. Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days draw near. Or Psalm 8, from the mouths of little children and infants, he has ordained praise. There's something positive being said about those who are very young. Well, likewise, we have something being positive being said about those who are old. 
Gray hair is a crown of splendor. It is attained by a righteous life. We tend to think that that means, you know, gray hair means a worried, anxious life. Um, I don't know about no hair, all right? That's, that's another one. I, you know, but again, it's a metaphor. You get the idea. It, it's saying that what is looked upon, you know, whatever. I mean, you hear that. This is, a, this is Proverbs 16, and the proverb is being poetic. You know, that um, the, the creases in someone's face can come from a lot of smiles or a lot of frowns. You hear all these different things. There's a, there's a proverbial wisdom here that's saying that those, there's something good about having age and wisdom and maturity. And, we'll just, and then you've got those who are in between. The glory of the young is in their strength, Proverbs 20, 29. This is just a sampling. We can go all throughout Scripture and we can see that. One of my favorite verses that ties this together, it's one of those that we don't, we don't pay attention to very often, but it's in Numbers chapter 8. You know, the Levite could serve, they had the special duty in the, in the Levite tribe of serving in the temple. A Levite began service at the age of 25, but they had to retire at 50. Why? At 50 the instruction is that they're supposed to retire, but they're supposed to teach the younger ones how to do this. It ensures that there will always be a mentoring process where the old will be teaching the young. Because you could have those that stay much longer than 50, and then you lose a generation who's never asked to take leadership. Or you could have those who, um, uh, who, who, who don't teach and then, again, you lose a generation of leadership, and you never get somebody investing in this and learning about it. But the, the point that John, I think, is making is, is that there's some unity, there's something good in every age. And remember that his overall theme is that we should love one another, and I think that includes generations as well. Every generation has something to offer the other generations. John says that generations are different and, and notice that in his statements here, there's something a little different about each one. I'm writing, look at verse 12 and verse 14, the first part of 14. I'm writing to you children. Why? Because your sins have been forgiven. But in 14, the first part he says, because you know the Father. In 13, he says, I'm writing to the mature ones. Why? Because you know Christ, the one who's from the beginning. And he says that verbatim again in the second uh, in the repetition of this. To the young people, he says, you won your battle with Satan. And then he says in the re- repetition of this at the end of 14, you're strong with God's word living in your heart. You've won your battle with Satan. So there's something different with each group. There, there's some difference. They've all attained to something different. They're not just all the same. But then there is something that ties them all together, isn't it? It has to do with their relationship with the father how they've come to know him and 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 i think the way we knew christ the day we were baptized has not changed in the course of years why not there's no reason that it shouldn't have changed there there is a place for growth John is saying that these generations are all different but they have something in common and that commonality is, the, um, is their struggle against the powers that separate us. Their struggle against the darkness and the hatred that turns us against each other. 
And all of them have some knowledge of the Father, of God, of Christ. So think about it like this. That which makes us difference, different is of lesser importance than that which makes us one, because that which makes us one is the Father. It's Christ. And, it's, and, and by the way, the, the, the struggle against the evil one is mentioned in here as well. So I don't think it's accidental then that in 15 and 16 and 17, he's describing the process of overcoming the world. That when you love the world, it distracts you from loving the Father. Second principle, he says, is that the world offers cravings that can never be satisfied. The world, in John, will be the source and the sum total of our sinful desires. Love of the world is counter to the love of God. Because it means that we're preoccupied with the things of this world and we're not focusing on the things of, the, of, the, of, you know, of God's world. And, and by the way, I think to make this a, too much of a distinction between physical and spiritual is to miss the point. This isn't about the physical world. This isn't that the world out there is just all evil. The world for John is, is, is our tendency to want to, to be gods ourselves and to master our, the creation that he made. It's that tendency for us to give in to those sinful desires. Look at the way he describes it in these passages. But um, there's still, I mean, just from reading Genesis, there's much in the world that's good because it's God's creation. This is not the world as God's creation. This is the world as that which is set against God's kingdom. Okay. So the way John is using world is he's describing this, this darkness, the brokenness. Uh, the, it's, he says, verse 16, the world only offers the lust for physical pleasure. The world uh, offers the lust for the things that we see. The world offers the pride that we get from our possessions. These things are not from the Father. This is the warping of the good things. That the, this is the distortion of the good that the Father has given us. It's from the evil world. But that, all of that is fading away along with everything that it craves um you know you 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 read this statement we got a triad there that we may be familiar with uh and i can never get it right i have to look at my notes lust of the eyes desire the flesh and the pride of life okay and we talk about jesus being tempted the same way and i don't know that that's an exact you know that's, that's taking first john and laying it over the gospels uh it's all right, and nothing wrong with that. Although I will say that Jesus' temptations are rather unique. When's the last time you were tempted to turn a rock into bread? We don't get tempted like that. But what we do, we get tempted to use the, the power and the authority and the, good, and the gifts that God has given us to serve ourselves. And that's very much in keeping with John's point. That when we take the things that God has given us and we turn them into our cravings to use for ourselves, we're very much participating in, in the, the sinful process of the world, to use John's language. Uh, John does not list any specific sins here because we ought to abstain from anything, even something good, that replaces God as the object of our trust and devotion. I mean, he could have given us a laundry list of sins here. Uh, lust of the eyes, desires of the flesh, pride of life, that's all very general. Why doesn't he just 
you know, mention, why didn't he, you know, we know what those three things are. It's uh, smoking, drinking, and dancing. That's what it is. Well, why doesn't he mention anything? Because he knows that we have the tendency to warp even the good things with sin so that they distract us from God. Even things like the law, which was, as Paul says, was good in many ways, the Pharisees warped it so that their ability to manage and to control the law became more important to them than the God who gave the law. And we can do the same thing with our traditions. We can do the same thing with our doctrines. We can make our doctrine and the things that we've always believed, we can make the old paths our God instead of asking ourselves, well, if the old paths are supposed to be better, why are they better? What is it about those that are better? What is about the God who shows us the way? And whether God's showing us an old way or a new way, if it's God's way, then it must be good because we're devoted to him. This is a problem and a challenge for all ages and all cultures. I, um, I read an article uh, some years ago. Oh, by the way, before you get, I want to show you that this is another quote. I know I'm really hitting on C.S. Lewis here a lot lately, but hey, man's a good writer. He says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Again, that comes from mere Christianity. I'm pretty sure about that. But this is something I think we need to keep in mind, too, that this world is going to offer us cravings, but will never be satisfied. It's like having a spiritual tapeworm. You're going to eat, you're going to eat, you're going to eat, but you're never going to be satisfied. Lewis says that if, we, if this is what we find to be true, that there's just, you know, there's nothing in this world that can satisfy us, then maybe there's another world where we will find satisfaction. <clears throat> and that's not just true today, these days, and once upon a time it used to be better. No, that's something that every generation has to do. Every generation, even the generations that went on before us, long before us, they're all called to overcome the world. No generation is in call. Can you think of a time when God in his word has ever said, I want you to embrace the status quo of the world? And the closest you can come to it is when he tells the exiles, seek the prosperity of the city that you're dwelling in. And of course, his point in that is, you're going to be there a while. (laughs) So you might as well plant some vineyards. You might as well invest. But he's not telling them to embrace the ways of the people there. There's never been a time, there's never been a culture where God has said, just embrace it. This is, the, this is the way it's supposed to be. He's always challenged us to rise above this world. Why? Because it's temporary, it's fleeting. As John says, it's fading away. Of all the different generations that are just represented in this room, each and every one of us at every age is going to be called upon to overcome the world in some way. This article that I was reading said that Uh, and it said this generation of young people, and that was probably 20 years ago, but it said this generation of young people is more influenced by the culture around them than the generation in the 1950s. I took exception at that. I said, no, wait wait, wait, wait a second. there's There's no proof of that. And this was being written out of a, well, it was a publication from a Christian college. I won't name it. But I can tell you this, most of our Christian colleges in the 1950s were segregated. Why? That was an accommodation to the culture. 
So we're always influenced by the culture in which we live. It's the air that we breathe. It's the, it's the water that we swim in. We may not even be aware of it, but it's going to affect us. When we were down there on the beach, you know, we love to see those little creatures. I don't know what they are. They're little shells. Tide comes in. Little things just float all around. They're little shells. And you think they're just old shells washing up. And then the tide goes out. And then all of a sudden they go pop, 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 pop. And they dig down into the sand. You ever seen those little guys? You know, and they just, they, I don't know, they have little jet engines in them or something. And they just dig down in the sand. And I'm thinking about their journey and everything. And, of course, you know, we're sitting there looking at them and everything. And then we'll pick one. We'll throw it back. And I thought, well, this is cruel. And I'm thinking, wait a second. The ocean is tossing these poor little guys all over the place. They just kind of float and go wherever the ocean gives. And they don't think anything of it. Why? Well, because they're mindless creatures. No, but because it's, I mean, that's the world that they live in. And you and I are often carried aloft, and we go through things, and we're not even aware of the forces that are impacting us. But we're called to overcome the world. That's going to be true of every generation. It's not something that the young people today need to figure that out. They do. But you and I may have to as well. And that's why John writes to each generation. He says, each of you has this different role in the struggle. And you need each other. Because the older ones have come along long enough that, that, they, that they've been through a lot. They've been through the struggles. And they come out on the other side and guess what? They've got a relationship with the Father. They're close to the Father. The young ones know this. They know the little children know that, that, that their sins are forgiven. That's, that's, that's all they know, and that's good enough. Your sins have been forgiven. That's a good place to start. You know the name of your father. You know that. Good. That's a good place to start. The mature ones, though, they know Christ, the one from the beginning. They've got a deeper knowledge of that. What it, comes, what it comes from the struggle of trying to overcome the world. And then the young ones, the ones in between, They've got God's love living in their hearts. They've won the battle with Satan. Here's, here's the encouragement that I want you to take from this and look at John's writing. First of all, he's saying that every age, every generation, God loves each and every one of them. All of them. And God calls every age to be faithful. That's not something that we can kind of check out on when we're younger and we want to sow our wild oats. It's not something we can just forget and ignore when we're older and we're too tired to do anything wrong. It's, you know, it's something that we're always called upon to do, to be faithful. Every age has the same need, the struggle to overcome the world. When I was talking about the campus ministry to some of our uh, uh, neighboring churches, I shared a message that I'm, I'm more confident of now than even 30 years ago when I was doing campus ministry. You've heard this message too, but actually it was, um, it was Cade Richards' father who asked me last week. He said, do you, do you have a lot of uh, optimism about this generation? I said, I do. I said, I do actually. And that's not because I'm a naturally optimistic person. I said, I do because one thing about it, this generation doesn't buy in to the lie as quickly. They're a little more skeptical. I mean, they've grown up with this enough, and some of the things that we, th you know, some of us are conditioned to accept and respect the authorities, you know, the, the powers that be, that there's always these people out there who, you know, they're supposed to know more than us. After all, they put, you know, they put spaceships on the moon and all that. This generation's kind of learned 
wait a second, not sure about that. And that might be all right, but that's mostly politics. Still in all, there might be a, a, they may have, they may have a, a, a good sense that there's nothing in this world that's really satisfying because they, they've seen how disappointing the world can be. And so when I talk to Christians of that generation, many of them, they're sold out. I mean, they're just like all of us. You know, you got people of different levels of, you know, everybody's struggling with something, so I'm not putting anybody down. But the thing is, they've got something to teach me, and I think I've got something to teach them. And I know that you've got something to teach the other generations that are sharing this room with you tonight. Thing is, we've got to stop letting Satan divide us, and we've got to realize that God loves us all, and he wants to call all of us into the struggle, and we all have something to offer. But once again, we let the forces of this world, well, you know, you're of this generation, and so you've got boomers, and you've got busters, and you've got uh, whatever, millennials, and X, Y, and Z, and all of this, and all of these generations, and I hope you never buy into that mess. Because it's true maybe in some places, but it's not true everywhere. And besides, what, what is an age? We can do it to ourselves too, by the way, this whole problem. We can go, oh, life was easier when I was in my 20s. It was just so much better then. Oh, the world was simpler. It made more sense. Oh, either that or you're too dumb to know the difference. I mean, you know, you know, I mean, uh, you know. You have young people, oh, I wish I was older and people would take me seriously, and then you get older, I wish I was younger and then people would respect me. You know, I mean, whatever. It, 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 it just depends on what outlook you want to bring into it. But listen, stop worrying about your age, however old you are. It doesn't matter, okay? It really doesn't matter. I'm stuck in the middle somewhere, so I can say that. It doesn't matter, okay? Maybe I'll change in 30 years, and you can come back and you can tell me that I was wrong. Or, well, I don't know. But anyway, the, uh, here's why. Here's why I say this. What does your age matter in the scope of eternity? You know what? I mean, imagine eternity. It's hard for us to wrap our thoughts around that. We can think of a long time. We can think of billions and billions of years. And we've just scratched the surface of eternity. Now, if that's the case, then what is 92 years against eternity? nothing it's like that little tiny grain of sand that was coming up in the ocean and all the rest of that out there and then that's not even a close analogy what does your age matter whatever age you are in the scope of eternity you and i are just kind of figuring this stuff out right now this is the rehearsal this life that we're in you know i've noticed and especially as i've gotten older i've noticed that i do this and i think you know Oh, you're young still. You know, we tell people, oh, wait, you're as old as I am, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And none of us are old. We're all a bunch of kids because there's eternity out there. We're not even in the real game yet. We're rehearsing. God's kind of teaching us. We're, we're, we're in kindergarten. Yeah. If you're in your 90s, if you're about to hit 100, you're still in kindergarten when it comes to Christianity in the scope of eternity. Now, of course, you know, listen to what John says, the, the mature ones, the little ones, and the ones in between. And meanwhile, that's the experience that we know. And there is no perfect age. There's not one of those that, he never preferences one of those over the other, does he? Nope. Because there, there, there's one principle, younger people turn into older people. I mean, that's the general rule. Young, younger people get older people. So 
the world, and that sometimes that world, by the way, is us, focuses on the negative, the negative with every age, the negative about the other age. And that's where his warning about walking in the light and, or about walking in the darkness and instead walking in the light, that's where this comes to bear. That business about hating another brother or sister, that's some serious business. He says if you claim to be a Christian and you hate, if you despise another person, and maybe you don't, I don't hate anybody, but if in general you look down upon or you despise or you disparage another group, Check your light level, okay? Because may, you, you may be veering into darkness. Beware. It's much better to walk in the light as he is in the light and to love one another. Um, this is how we do, by the way, this, he says this is how we do the will of God. We're going to sing this song and encourage one another. And if you need to partake of communion, it's prepared in room 100. Let's stand and sing, and then David Carson will dismiss us in prayer.